We run from it. We mask it. We make jokes to deal with it. We hide from it. In alcohol. In beautiful houses. In fancy cars. With drugs. With impressive degrees. With the perfect life. What are we running from? Reality. Jack Welch said, Face reality as it is. Not as it was, or as you want it to be. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. And welcome to the second part of 10 Unavoidable Truths. These are 10 statements of fact about our mental and emotional health that, in my experience, this is just my experience, we struggle to accept. These are the 10 statements. I racked my brain. I came up with a lot more than 10, but I sort of teased it down to just the 10 that I thought, these are the ones we don't want to face. These are the ones that cause us the most trouble in our growth, in our relationships, in our enjoyment of our lives. Now, why do we struggle to accept these things? What makes these truths so difficult? I think it's because they imply personal accountability. Life is hard. You've heard me say this. Life is hard and the road is long. I say it all the time. Life is hard and the road is long. It takes a lot to get through life. We need our physical needs met. Those are things like food, shelter, clothing, water, clean air, those things. And I say that very lightly, but many people in the world don't even have those things, right? Here I am in the first world, in the Western world, in America, taking these things for granted. But we need those needs met to live optimally. We need our emotional needs met. We need to learn how to build and maintain good relationships, Why? Because we need company. We need consolation. We need companionship. We need encouragement in our lives. Human beings are the most social creatures known on the face of the earth. And then we need our mental needs met. We need to learn. We need to know how to stimulate and grow our minds. And we need to grow in how we do all of these things as we age. So it's a complicated process, this living thing, isn't it? And some of us naturally live more from the mind, right? Our thinking brain is what's guiding our way through life. We're making decisions based on knowledge, rational thought. That's great. Some of us are far more heart-driven. You know who you are. You know who we are, right? We're impulsive. We're emotional. We follow our feelings. We choose what we believe will make us feel the best, okay? And some of us kind of live from the gut. And I might be referencing the Enneagram for those of you that know the Enneagram. But some of us do. We live more from the gut. We listen to that voice inside us that says yes or no. We kind of go in a gut direction. You know, and the goal of life is to integrate all three, to not live overly from the mind, the heart, or the gut, but to really be integrated in all three. But whatever internal guidance system we use to direct us, all of us tend to avoid certain realities. All of us. This is a human condition. And some of us can face certain unpleasant truths, and some of us run away from them. Others of us can face those, no problem. Others of us, we're courageous in the face of a truth. Others of us just can't even deal with it. We're like an ostrich. We might stick our head in the sand. But this list is compiled with the 10 realities I think we evade or avoid the most. Okay, so this is the second episode. If you haven't heard the first part, go back and listen to that. Or just start here and listen to that later. But the first five are the following. Okay, number one, not everything can be healed. That's a fact. Not everything is going to be perfectly healed in us. That's just the way of life. We have to live with the broken places. Number two, no matter how much love we give, no matter how healthy we are, some people are not going to respond to it. Okay, so this means we have to grieve relationships that are not reciprocal in ways that we really want and in really ways that we've put forth energy. Sometimes people will just not meet us where we are. That's a reality. It's a fact. Number three, your self-knowledge is your responsibility. This means the work is yours. It's on me. It's on you to discover who we are. It means we can't blame other people for not knowing who we are. Yes, it is other people's fault for hurting or harming us, but it's our responsibility to deal with it and make our peace with it, to learn our lessons with it. Okay, that work is our responsibility. Number four, you are fashioning your own life. And this unavoidable truth, this fact, challenges the victim mentality we can all get into. And it's the mindset in which we're giving our power away to other people in the form of dependency, complaining, blaming. That's a big one. That's a big warning sign that we're in a victim mentality or someone's in a victim mentality if they're caught up in a habit of blaming other people. And it's really the abdication of personal accountability and personal responsibility. So that's an unavoidable truth. We are fashioning our own lives. Number five, people and institutions will let you down. 
disappointment is part of life. It means we can't live with unrealistic expectations and then we're crushed when things don't turn out. Friends, we're going to be disappointed. We need to live with the expectation that sometimes things will work out and sometimes they just won't. That is life. That is the balance. So let's dive into numbers six through 10. All right, number six, let's just dive in. You are the only person who can create the space necessary to hold all that you are. I'm going to say that again. You are the only person who can create the space inside you necessary to hold all that you are. You know, I this came up in a session in the past week with a client, and I won't say anything about the session because I don't have her permission to disclose anything. But that thought came to me, and we were really talking about this in the session, this concept of all that we are. And I thought about a little while back, I did an episode called No, You're Not Crazy. And for those of you who listened to that, you remember it, right? It was all about the internal parts of us, and we explored the various parts of our internal worlds. And we looked at the reality, there's that word again, that we all live with various parts of the self that come in and out of our personalities in various ways, depending on the environment. So sometimes when a client comes in, if they're sort of in a lost place with their identity, they're really struggling with relationships, there are poor boundaries, there's lots of anxiety, you know, they're not really connecting to themselves, to other people, I might have them draw a wheel in my office. And at the hub of the wheel is the true self. And then there are spokes coming out of it. Okay. Now that hub, the true self, that self is consistent, steady, strong. That self is unapologetic and it's wise. It's kind of natural wisdom to it. Okay. And then those spokes come out from the wheel and those are all the parts of the selves. And you might be listening to this thinking, I should do this exercise. Do it. Absolutely do it. This is a good way to sort of get it out of your head, get it out of your heart and get it on paper so you can look at it and then talk about it. Okay. This is a good tool. The selves are who we become in certain environments. Okay. So maybe it's our professional self or the intimate self the leader self or the follower self, the learner self or the teacher self, okay? Now, if the spokes of the wheel are elements of the false self, they exist to win approval, favor. They want acceptance, okay? The false self wants to stay out of danger, to stay in control. The false self wants to assert power and so on, okay? That's all the false self. Basically the opposite of consistent, steady, strong, unapologetic, and wise, all right? Now, these are the flavors of us that function in the service of the ego. The ego is the false self, and these might be the easygoing self when we're really anxious inside. Remember, the false self is all about appearances, not authenticity. It could be the angry, aggressive self when we're afraid, okay? It could be the arrogant self when we're intimidated. We showcase our knowledge when we're intimidated. It could be the submissive self when we want our own way. Okay, we're going to become the manipulative self, the self that will just go along because we're kind of working our own angle, right? And so on. You get it, okay? Now, this splintering of the self into the spokes of a wheel or into these parts is largely the result of fractured relationships. When we are in relationship with fractured people, we fracture to please them. We fracture to win their love. So If I'm in relationship with, say, I'm a child and I'm in relationship with a parent who can only approve of certain behaviors, well, then guess what? Those spokes of the wheel are those selves that are going to exhibit those behaviors so I get what I need from my parent. Okay, same thing with a romantic relationship, a spouse or a friendship or a boss. If we're in relationship with fractured people who can't hold all that they are, they will only approve and hold certain parts of us. And then those are the parts of us that come out in the relationship. Okay, so we all know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're having lunch with a friend and you start getting a little bit deeper and more personal and you start talking about your pain, for example. And, you know, we've all had this moment. I mean, as a therapist, I've learned to gauge people better than I did before I knew what I know now. But sometimes, you know, when you're opening up and people are like, wow, thanks, Debbie Downer, and they just totally shut down the authenticity. It's like they can't handle your pain. And the reason why they can is because they can't handle their own. They're fractured. Okay, so fractured people fracture us, and that's when those spokes of the wheel develop. Now, there is one emotion that drives us to fracture that way, and that is fear. Fear is what drives the splintering of the self. Why? Because we don't believe that our true authentic self will be acceptable. We don't believe that that's going to be loved. We don't believe we'll belong. It's an important word. So we morph. We adjust. We edit. We people please. We just want to feel safe. We just want to feel like we belong. 
Now, some of us might morph into like dictators, okay? And why? Because our hearts are very afraid to trust. We have a lot of trouble being vulnerable. We don't like softening and allowing other people to touch our hearts, to touch our souls. So we seize control of every interaction. We'll, we'll show up, but it's got to be on our terms. We have to be right. We have to be in control. Now, some people will mistake this for self-confidence, and I beg to differ, okay? Some of us morph into non-abrasive, agreeable, passive little flowers, okay? We can't ruffle feathers. We don't want to say no. We don't want to stand up against opposition. No, no, it's fine. No, that's good. We just go along to get along. It's all good, all right? That's an adaptive behavior because it keeps us safe. Right? We don't have to rub anybody the wrong way. Some of us become quiet to avoid standing out. We don't have anything to say. How are you? Fine. What's new? Nothing. You know, I've never met a boring person. I've only met hidden people. I've never met a boring person. I don't believe people are boring. I believe sometimes we experience people as boring. They don't have much to say. They don't have opinions. They don't have stories. They don't have thoughts to bring to a conversation. Mostly, it's just fear. It could be a lack of self-awareness. They don't know themselves. And some of you listening might be thinking, I'm boring. Sometimes I'm boring. I'm here to tell you, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, no. Mm -mm. You're not boring. You may be unaware. You may need to buy a journal. You may need to sit down and start writing down your own thoughts and your own feelings and see how much life and vibrancy and interesting person there is inside you. But some of us become quiet. That's a spoke of the wheel. Quiet Peter. Quiet Vanessa. Quiet whoever you are. Okay? Some of us become complacent to avoid failure. So good enough is good enough, and we don't want to stick our neck out, and we don't want to take chances. We don't want to take the risk. So we don't face criticism or ridicule, so we're just complacent. No, it's all good. I'm fine. It's all good. And really what it is is just a fear of failure. Some of us become egotistical and proud to avoid looking inadequate. Okay, we puff up, we get louder, we get bigger, we got to showcase all that we are. Some of us become mini professors, experts at everything. Why? Because we can't handle emotional vulnerability. We avoid connecting with brokenness, through brokenness, through the heart. The heart's too messy. Knowledge is neater. It's all binary. It's either true or false. And we avoid humanity. So we have all these parts, right? The powerful part, the vulnerable part, the spiritual master, <laughs> the part of us that's like innately, beautifully connected to the world. We pray, we hear our voice, we connect in nature. We have the innocent child in us. We have the wise leader who can rise to an occasion and lead others. And then we have the curious student in us who just sort of sits at the feet of other people and learns. There's so many parts. All of them are just amazing. So now let's talk a little bit about what we call the shadow, okay? This term was coined by the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, and it refers to the parts of the self that aren't as healthy, uh, maybe not as presentable, as acceptable, or maybe as likable as the other parts of the self. Now, I want you to think about the shadow like this. Think about a plant that's placed in front of a window, okay? Now, this plant really needs sunlight to thrive, and the parts of the plant that get the most light are going to be robust and green, brimming with life, just beautiful, shiny green leaves, okay? Now, if the plant thrives in sunlight, the parts of the plant that aren't getting the light are going to be where? In shadow, okay? And as the leaves are in the shadows, they're not getting the light that they need. They might look sickly, discolored, maybe not as healthy as the parts that grow up in the light. This is a good analogy for the shadow self, and it's going to help you understand yourself and how the shadow emerges in each one of us. Because the shadow is not a place of shame. It's a place that didn't get enough light, okay? That's true of every one of us. The shadow is comprised of the parts of us that grow with less love, than is needed for healthy development and optimal functioning. Once again, the shadow is comprised of the parts of us that grow with less love than is needed for healthy development and optimal functioning. Not less attention, that's different, less love, okay? It's like if you go to the gym and you lift weights and one muscle group you work really hard, but another one you don't. The strength is imbalanced. The body is actually not in balance. Emotionally, we can be out of balance in the same way. The parts of us that are more fearful, and that might mean more timid, more unsure, but it could also mean more aggressive. Remember that the root of aggression is fear, unhealthy aggression. That root is fear. 
could be more people-pleasing, more frozen, more intellectual, more unavailable. This is the shadow self. It's the part that didn't get the love and the light that it needed, so it grew up in the shadow. These are the parts that we hide from others, even from ourselves. We don't want to admit to anyone, no one, least of all ourselves, how fearful we are. Think about every interaction you have in a day. Ask yourself how much of the way you're behaving is driven by fear, the fear of failure, the fear of not being in control, the fear of looking bad, the fear of looking weak, the fear of looking stupid, the fear of looking selfish, the fear of looking high and mighty, the fear of looking lowly. Think about this. The shadow is all about fear. It's the fear of being seen. It's the fear of being unseen. It's the fear of being known. It's the fear of being unknown. We want all those bright, shiny, healthy green leaves showing all the time. So what do we do? We seek out relationships because we actually want all of these parts of us to be experienced, accepted, understood. Okay, we bring our hub and all the spokes of our wheel to another person in relationship. And we want that person to see all of us and accept all of us. We want them to know these parts of us with gentleness, love, wisdom, knowing. We want these parts of us to even be dear to other people. We want that kind of acceptance, right? And this is undergirding our drive for companionship. Friends, it's largely about acceptance. And there's nothing wrong with this desire. But here's the unavoidable truth. You need to be the person who can hold all that you are. Both the false parts, the authentic parts, the healthy spokes of the wheel, the unhealthy spokes of the wheel, the shadow, the health, all of it. They are who you are. And when we look to other people to see us and validate and hold all that we are, we are on the road to forming codependent relationships. I'm going to say that again. It's important. When we look to other people to see us and validate us and hold all that we are, we are on the road to forming codependent relationships. Why? Because we're asking our partner, our friend, whoever it is, we're asking someone else to give us the acceptance we cannot give ourselves. We are shoving these unlovable parts of ourselves into another's arms, into another's lap, and effectively saying, here, you love him. You love her. I can't do it. I can't hold all of this. You do it. But we need to be the one. There's a lot to us. Now, this I'm sharing with permission, okay? Just the other day in therapy, I was discussing this very thing with a client. And he shared wisdom that was staggering in the moment. I just stopped dead in my tracks and looked at him and thought, my goodness, you get it. Okay, so here's what happened. We were discussing all the parts of the self that appear in relationship in different scenarios, the intimate parts and how all these parts come out with a partner, but they don't belong to the partner. They were in us to begin with. Okay, so I have this piece of artwork in my office, and it's my favorite piece of artwork I've ever had ever in my life, really. And I actually got it at a very broken time in my life. And I picked it out with someone who was a very toxic relationship. But that artwork has still meant so much to me. And it's just simply a wooden board. And it's sort of like a textured white creamy board. It's just white. And then stenciled or written on the lower right hand side, it just says know thyself. And I saw it in a home goods store. Um, I think it was Bliss in Nashville, if y'all have been there. And I saw it and was like, I have to have that. And so I bought it on the spot. And it's hung in every important place in my life since. But it's, you know, it's the words of Socrates, if you know that phrase. And it was written across the Oracle of Delphi in ancient Greece. Know thyself. But as we were discussing all these parts in this therapy session, my client was sitting on the sofa. And he looked up at that artwork. And just very simply, he got this very knowing look in his eyes. And he said, Vanessa, that should say know thyselves. Isn't that amazing? I loved that. And I looked at him and I said, I think that might be one of the most wise things I've ever heard uttered in this room. He got it. That's it. Yes, know thyselves. Friends, we are the ones who acknowledge the parts of us without avoidance. We are the ones who accept ourselves, all of us, without apology. We are the ones who create space inside of us to say to each and every part, whether it's healthy or not, you got to learn how to say to each and every part, you are welcome here. You are loved. I love you. I will hold you. I will understand you. I will not reject you. If anyone else rejects you, I never will. You are part of me and you belong. Dang it. That could be the whole podcast, but there's more. Okay. Number seven. <laughs> here we go. Unavoidable truth. Number seven, therapy is not a magic bullet. Oh my God, I want to say this like 27 times. Therapy is not a magic bullet. Some people don't 
grow. They just talk. Ugh, you hate this. I hate this. It's true. It's unavoidable. Let's face it. We've all heard or we have uttered the words, someone so needs therapy. You need therapy. Honestly, I think I stopped saying this when I became a therapist because I was like, no, no, no. Not everybody needs therapy. Therapy does not work for everybody. What people need is self-honesty. I mean, there's a lot of ways to procure, love that word, self-honesty. But we've all said it, right? Or we've said it kind of in joking, maybe not so much joking, like you really need to get help. You need therapy. Okay. Now, it's usually when we're trying to relate to someone who's difficult. (laughs) You know, It's like, go get therapy, then you won't be such a pain in the neck. And typically, that difficulty is someone who lacks self-awareness. Okay, so think about it. The ability to know yourself and reflect honestly and thoughtfully on your own behaviors, that's usually what drives deep, meaningful conversations and connection. It's self-knowledge. And when someone is emotionally blocked, they're defensive, maybe they're in denial, any kind of behavior that seems to be avoiding the reality of who they are, we often say, very often with contempt, let's be honest, you need therapy. But look, therapy is not for everyone. Now, let me qualify this. Everyone should do inner work. Absolutely. Everyone needs to be on the conscious journey of their own life, not just skipping through the tulips, bumping along through life, having one experience after another and not learning a damn thing. Okay, that is not living. Living is conscious. Living is intentional. Living is knowing that you're on the path of your own life. Okay, everyone should become aware of that. Right. That means we have to do inner work. That means we have to face ourselves and face reality. It also means taking the time, devoting the energy to know who you are. You got to know what you want, why you want it, what gets in your way. Everyone should do this. It's good work. This is part of being alive and being a thoughtful human being. Therapy is a way to do this. It's a way. It is not the way. It is not the only way. It is a way. And if there is trauma, therapy is a way to gain those fragmented parts of the self back. Uh, If there's hardship, therapy is a way to process it and find some meaning. If you are in conflict, therapy is a way to find resolution. Maybe you need to learn better methods of communication and being in relationship with yourself, with others. That's great. Okay. Therapy is good for all of that and even more. What makes therapy work are two things. Okay. The person in the therapy room and the therapist. Now, let's break this down. The person. Three qualities are needed to get the most that you can out of therapy. Courage. Curiosity and consistency. Okay? Courage. Therapy requires introspection and honesty. And it's not easy. It is not easy. I laugh out loud these days far more unapologetically and much more loudly than I used to in the past when people refer to therapy as a crutch. Are you kidding me? No, seriously. Are you kidding me? These people have no idea how hard it is to sit in an office in my office, if you're listening to this and you're my client, that is very often too hot or too cold, but has beautiful plants. But to sit in an office and face yourself, to talk about your anxiety, to talk about your screwed up thoughts, your messed up relationships, to talk about the parts of you that you're terrified to expose to anybody, that is not a crutch. That is an act of sheer courage. You know, people want to keep therapy in the realm of theories and interventions. It's like going to a doctor's office. Oh, you see a therapist? What's your diagnosis? Okay. My clients know I don't diagnose anybody. If anybody asks me what their diagnosis is, I typically say a broken heart and we move on. Okay. You are not a label. You are a divine, sacred, gorgeous, brilliant manifestation of all the light and power and energy in the universe. I'm sorry. Can I say that? Yeah, I can. It's my podcast. Okay. That's what you are. Therapy is an experience of being mirrored. I hope to God that I'm holding space in the room for someone to come in in the courage of their humanity and say, this is who I am. And for me to say back, this is who you are. That's courage. Therapy is a process. It is not a band-aid. It is a courageous process. And courage is par for the course of therapy. Man, I'm on a soapbox today. All right. Curiosity. This is a person who wants to know how to better their life. There are certain personality types, and I'm not going to use labels, but there are certain personality types that do not thrive in therapy, and these people do not get anything out of it. 
If they do, it is a 10-year process to melt down all the walls of self-prominence and self-aggrandizement and self-importance to get to that broken person underneath. But if they're at all curious, they'll stick with it. Therapy requires curiosity. People who do well in therapy want answers, and they're willing to dig for them. They're willing to search for them. They understand that that's their job. The most difficult client are clients who come into therapy like the therapist is some magician. Okay, I'm supposed to wave a magic wand. The counselor is supposed to wave some magic wand with a few simple words, give you some sort of breathing exercise as homework, and send you on your way after one session. This does not happen. Therapy is not a magic pill. People who are curious, they might be skeptical about therapy, and I actually really like working with skeptics, but they're curious This is traditionally a person who does well in therapy. They want answers well enough to put in the time, the work, and spend the money. Consistency. Now, some people want and need short-term therapy. Some want long-term therapy. They serve different purposes. Both are totally fine. But both types still require commitment and consistency. Whether you see a therapist for six sessions or for six years, you have to show up. I can't help. No therapist can help or heal someone who doesn't trust them. And trust takes time to develop. Trust is time plus consistency. So the relationship in therapy is what's helping the client heal. They have to trust the therapist. And for that trust to develop, they got to show up. These are a few factors that help the process to be effective. Okay? Courage, curiosity, consistency. Now let's talk about the therapist. All right, the therapist. Let's look at a couple of qualities that make a therapist good at being a therapist. Empathy, experience, eagerness. Okay? Empathy. This is a no-brainer, and it is non-negotiable. Empathy is what allows the therapist to enter not just the room with you as a client or any client, but the space, the energy. This is what gives us the feeling that we desire so badly, which is that we aren't alone. Empathy fills in the space between two people with humanity. There's shared feeling. There's shared experience. This goes well beyond wanting to do good, wanting to help people. A lot of people get into this field because they want to help people. That's a great, great reason to become a therapist. Wasn't necessarily my reason to become a therapist, believe it or not. If you want to know about that, you can ask me about it. But it wasn't, I didn't have that sort of do-gooder, like, oh, I just want to help people. It was sort of like, I have just emerged from battle, and I am more whole on the other side, and I want to walk with people through the same journey. So I guess you could say that's helping people, but it went a little bit deeper than that for me. But the empathy, okay, back to the empathy. It's, it's about sharing brokenness, sharing humanity, and in that shared space, in that simple presence of empathy, healing takes place. Okay, experience. Now, I don't mean experience in the field. I don't mean 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, a therapist. I don't mean that. I mean this. Hear me. This is so important. It is experience with their own pain. Therapists are not made in the classroom and they are not made in the chair. They are made on the sofa. Every good therapist has done their own work. They have faced themselves. They have danced with their own demons. And they have figured out a way to do that without breaking apart. Now, a therapist who has not been on their own journey can only take you so far. Good therapists were good clients. Good therapists are good clients. They've been in both roles. I can't tell you how many people I sat with in graduate school who had never been in therapy. And I remember thinking to myself, I probably said this out loud and I'm sure I made some enemies. But I remember thinking to myself, how do these people know they want to do this for a living? This is really hard work. It's hard to be a client. It's hard to sit in the presence of your own pain. Try sitting in the presence of somebody else's and not wanting to rush in and mollify it. That is not therapy. Therapy is the ability to be in pain with someone, not push them out of it with intellectual ideas. A therapist has experience in their own life, deep and personal experience with their own process. And then eagerness. This is the passion that we have that we bring to the work. Therapists who are good are eager to learn. They're eager to learn you. They don't think they know you. They don't think they have all the answers. And they're impassioned about bringing growth into the session. Okay? They're not overly clinical, overly intellectual. And to be completely honest here, I may be talking more about a preference. But I don't know. I mean, I've sat with therapists who were totally by the book. I've sat with therapists who I thought, you don't have a damn idea what I'm talking about. And I just, it was like one session. I was like one and done. And, you know, 
it takes time to find a therapist that you trust. You know, we've all heard people say like, oh, I saw five doctors and I finally found someone who gave me the right diagnosis and the right treatment. Guys, sometimes it's the same process finding a therapist. It's okay for you to make a 15-minute appointment and say, look, I just want to read some of the energy in the room and see if you're the right person for me. Keep seeing different therapists until you find one who can really grasp what's going on, where there's empathy, not sympathy. So let me say something about that. Sympathy is this. Oh, you poor thing. Oh, that must be so hard. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's sympathy. Okay, there's nothing wrong with sympathy, but it actually doesn't go far enough in a therapy room. Empathy is, I get it. And sometimes empathy is not even said, it's just felt. Okay, sometimes it's going to take a few tries. Okay, and also look for someone with whom you're making positive steps. Here's an unavoidable truth that's a sub unavoidable truth in this topic. Okay, the sub truth is this therapy should work, you should feel better. You should feel stronger. Is it easy all the time? No. Is it going to like remove all your pain all at once? Absolutely not. We're not magicians. We're broken people on the same journey. But it should work. You should be starting to see lighter places in your life. You should be starting to get more clarity. You should be seeing behavioral shifts. Therapy should work. It should be helping to resolve the problem that brought you in. Okay, so no, it's not a magic bullet. You don't just get better because you, quote unquote, go to therapy. You need to be very active and present in the process, and you need a therapist who can do what you want to do with you. Lots of factors involved that contribute to a therapeutic success. All right, number eight. This is a hard one. We're going to unpack it, okay? Number eight, you cannot have control over another person unless you plan on abusing them in some way. Yes, I just said that. You can have no control over another human being unless you plan, get this in your head, unless you're okay with abusing them in some way. Now, it sounds harsh, I know. All right. Abuse is a strong word, so let's take it apart. Let's define abuse. Abuse means a few things, okay? It's kind of a broad term. It can mean to use or treat something improperly, like the abuse of alcohol or the abuse of the human body, you know. It can mean to force someone to do something against their will for personal gain, It can mean to treat someone or something with violence causing harm. And that sort of goes along with treating something improperly. To abuse something means to not treat it with the inherent value or worth that it deserves. Now, when we're talking about human relationships, abuse means using force over another person in such a way that it harms them. Okay, abuse is about control. And that's what I want you to keep in mind. Abuse is about control. That's why that statement is you cannot control another human being unless you can get okay with abusing them. Because abuse is always about controlling people. Now, not all forms of force are abuse. I know my parents out there are like, oh, God, did I, did I abuse my child when I forced my toddler into a car seat? No. Sometimes you need to wrangle those precious little people into their car seat and they kick and they scream and they may act like they're being abused. They're not. Why? Because it's for their own good. It's for their safety. So, yes, force is used, hopefully never to the point of physical pain or harm. Although that does happen sometimes, but it's force, but it's not abuse. Now, forcing a toddler to sit alone in their room for hours as a punishment for disobedience is mistreatment and abuse. Why? Because it goes far beyond what a small child can handle emotionally or relationally. Okay, that is about control. That's about punishing, making a child feel poorly instead of feel their consequences in a healthy way. So likewise, as adults, when we are asking for what we need, when we're using our influence to affect the thinking of others, this is not abuse. Okay, this is normal, healthy human behavior. We can state our wants, our feelings, we can influence other people with rational arguments, with experience, life experience, all of that is great. But when we get into relational tactics and strategies that are meant to weaken another person, okay, such as shaming, manipulating, insulting, punishing someone for certain outcomes that we don't desire, we are being abusive. We're being abusive. The root of abuse is a need for power over someone else. That's the root of abuse. You want to control another human being. Now, whether the abuse is parental, and that's parent over child, it could be spousal, one spouse over another, 
Professional abuse is between bosses and employees or co-workers amongst each other. There's governmental abuse, which means a government is abusing the power it holds over its people. There's spiritual abuse. Ooh, that's a big one which is a faith-based institution, a spiritual leader, any kind of religious or spiritual entity harming individuals for the sake of its own self, its own gain. All abuse is about power and control. Now, why in the world would we want power over another person? Well, because we want them to do what we want. It's plain and simple, right? It's very obvious. We think their decisions, whatever they are, are coming between us and a perceived happiness. So we want to coerce them or force them into doing what we want. And we think that if they comply, we'll be happier. It will go better. Okay, this person's noncompliance is the problem. This is the setup for abuse. Noncompliance is the problem. We are moving now into force, coercive measures, and possible abuse. Now, there can be a Machiavellian twist here. So let's talk about that phrase for a minute. Machiavelli became famous for his work, uh, The Prince. Some of you have read it. It's a classic. I'm not going to get too deep into it. We don't have time. But The Prince is a short literary work that describes how a leader should appear to maintain the peace in the realm. It's not about who a leader should be. It's not about leadership. It's about appearance. Okay? And it's from The Prince that we received that famous phrase, the end justifies the means. Now, what does this mean? What Machiavelli was arguing was that the perceived peace or stability of the realm, the kingdom, is the goal. So whatever the prince or leader or ruler must do to secure that end is what has to happen. The end, meaning the perceived peace of the realm, justifies the means. Whatever I have to do to get what I want, if I think this outcome is in the best interest of everybody, whatever I have to do to get there is totally justifiable. Friends, Machiavellianism is considered one of the darkest human traits known to humankind. I want you to really hear this. It's important. The end does not justify the means. See, in the prince, virtue was less important than the appearance of virtue. Substance was less important than appearance. Goodness was less important than manipulative control, all for the sake of the success of the kingdom. It was all for the sake of being done in the best interest of the people. Let's talk about the dark triad. Okay, the dark triad is the three-legged description of the traits of some of the most criminal minds you have ever contemplated in your life. Think serial rapists, serial killers, like the darkest, most hurtful, harmful people in society typically have what we call the dark triad. And it is narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, where the end justifies the means, all of which have one thing in common, no empathy. Now you might be thinking, geez, Vanessa, what the heck does all of this have to do with me? Okay, here's the unavoidable truth. We all need to address the ways in us that we are manipulative, emotionally violent with one another, insulting, cruel, negligent, explosive, Friends, if these go unchecked, they are absolutely forms of emotional, verbal, and psychological abuse. And all of them are employed, usually, in an attempt to get someone else to do what we want because we think it's better. And what do we tell ourselves? Unconsciously, the ends justify the means. I know this isn't fun to hear, but we need to face it. We can be unsafe. We can be emotionally, I hope not, but physically violent, but we can be that way. I remember facing a reality earlier in my life. You know, I got married early in my, well, my mid-20s. And guys, I was like a walking, talking container of pain (laughs) during that time of my life. And man, that pain came out on other people. And I remember facing the reality after my divorce. This isn't why we divorced, but it was just a fact And it was a factor of the marriage. I remember admitting to myself that I had been verbally abusive with my ex-husband because when I would get really mad and really frustrated and I didn't know how to communicate, I didn't, I didn't know how to explain a feeling. I didn't know how to ask for what I wanted. And I resorted to insults and I would call him an a-hole. That's verbal abuse. How would I have felt if he had called me a bitch or a slut? Let's be frank. Let's be real. It goes both ways. It is not okay for me to say it, and it wouldn't have been okay for him to say it, and to his credit, he never did. 
I was the verbally abusive one. He had his own issues, but I was the verbally abusive one. I allowed my anger to take hold, and I used language to shame, insult, and push him toward behavior I wanted. I wanted to hurt him so that he would hear me. And I had to own that kind of abusive tendency in myself. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into what I heard during childhood that ingrained using words as a source of control. Okay, it was there. There was a pattern there. Suffice it to say, I did learn it, and I repeated it, and I had to call a spade a spade in order to change. Actions that can become abusive in relationships are manipulating, shaming, name-calling, dominating, guilting, insulting, neglecting, ignoring, raging, directing, even people-pleasing. That's a form of manipulation. Guys, the most loving thing we can give another person is freedom. Yes, state what you feel. State what you need. Yes, make rational arguments. Talk it out. Yes, use influence. Yes, use influence if necessary to spur another person on, your partner, your friend, your child, your boss, your client, your employee, whoever. Spur them on toward better, healthier actions. And yes, use authority when you have it to hold the freedom and the choice of another person in proper boundaries. Yes, that is a good function of authority if you have it. But when we get into actions that weaken others, that are meant to degrade them, that are meant to strip them of basic freedom, guilt, coerce them into behaviors that we deem preferable. When we're Machiavellian, where the ends justify the means, we are edging toward or perhaps well-situated in abusive behavior. Love exists in freedom only. Love thrives only in freedom. Okay, number nine. This is very short, but I feel like it needs to be said. Certain behaviors will drive people away. Okay, it's so simple, but it's true. Certain behaviors will drive people away, and these are generally behaviors that destroy trust. So just real simple. Lying drives people away from us. Why? Because it destroys trust. That is intentionally deceiving others. That's what it means to lie. It is to intentionally deceive another person. Unless you're planning a surprise party, this will destroy relationships. Manipulating. Trying to get your needs met without coming clean and saying what you really need. That is what is at the core of manipulation. It is not evil, dark. I mean, I know we just talked about Machiavellianism, but in general, when we're manipulating, we're not psychopaths. We're just, we don't know how to get our needs met. We don't know how to ask for it, so we're trying to get it met without asking, okay? Raging. Rage is creating an environment that is unsafe and laden with fear, Okay, shutting down, becoming emotionally unavailable, becoming intentionally unavailable, that'll drive people away. Gossiping, talking about people instead of to people. Impulsivity. What is impulsivity? Well, we all know what it is, but why does it ruin relationships? Because it's not thinking about the consequences of an action before we take it. And we're dragging everyone around us into the fallout of poorly planned decisions. That's impulsivity. And it destroys trust. So we can't be shocked or appalled or surprised when people turn away if we've acted in ways that break down trust. And we don't need to feel overly guilty or sensitive or beat ourselves up if we need to leave relationships where these behaviors are consistent and present. These behaviors destroy trust. Relationships are built on trust. So without trust, there's no point. Now, trust can be restored. It can be rebuilt to a point. But sometimes the rupture is just a bridge too far. And then all we can do is grieve the relationship if the trust can't be rebuilt Now, forgiveness is always an option. Forgiveness is always appropriate. We have to let go, but we don't have to reinstitute trust. And when the trust is destroyed with behaviors like this, nobody needs to be shocked. Nobody needs to hang on when you don't trust someone for too long. It can't be repaired. No one needs to be absolutely floored that relationships end when they've acted in untrustworthy ways. Okay, it's a hard, but it's an unavoidable truth. All right, 10 10. Number 10. Here we go. Trauma, abuse, brokenness, hardship, mistakes, all the things that break us, my friends, all of it, all the other things that weaken us, change us, they do not decrease our value or worth. Say it again. Trauma, abuse, hardship, brokenness, mistakes, all the things that weaken us and change us do not decrease our value or worth. Let's talk a little bit about art shall we? Okay. So 
All these famous works of art that you see in museums or you see pictures online, the Mona Lisa, Botticelli, uh, Mondrian, whatever. You know, I'm not an art history buff, but I love art. And from the classics to the modern masters, Picasso, all of it. The Renaissance artists, the, oh, what's the word I'm thinking of? The, um, oh, Monet. Some of you are thinking of it right now. Seurat. What are they called? Oh, it's going to drive me nuts. The Impressionists. Good. Okay. All of them. All right. Where do we get these pieces of art? All of these pieces have a story. They came from a private collection. Some of them were found in abandoned houses. How do we get them looking so good after sometimes centuries of existence that they're able to hang in a museum? How do they stay maintained? How do the colors not fade? Who's doing this? Who's maintaining the art? I promise this has to do with your mental health. Okay, the name of the person who does this is a conservator or it's a restorer. So the restorer is the really obvious name, the restorer of art. But the conservator is the person who is highly skilled, trained, and focused on one aim, one aim alone, to conserve, preserve, and restore valuable, sometimes invaluable works of art. Okay, so it's important for us to know that we restore art. We don't just let it go. You know, when the Mona Lisa starts fading or... You know, Van Gogh's, is it the sunflowers, that beautiful painting? When that starts, we don't just let it go. There are people who are trained at not only preserving these works of art, but when something is found in an abandoned warehouse or a burned down, half burned down barn or a private collection that's been sitting in an attic forever, there are people who are trained to slowly, carefully, painstakingly restore, take off all the layers of grime and soot and whatever else is on it, dust from ages, restore the paint colors, restore it all back to the beauty of what was originally intended. And we need these works of art. Okay, I'm a lover of art. But we really need these stages in our history. We need the reflection of our story. So there's a gentleman, I researched this a little bit online, Peter Himmelstein, who is the paintings conservator at Applebaum and Himmelstein Conservators and Consultants in New York City. And he works for individuals and small groups. Okay, so he will restore personal items and then he'll restore, you know, gallery art. And then big museums like the MoMA, the Met, the Louvre, the, you know, Prado, they all have their own people on staff, the best of the best, who maintain and restore that art in the museums. So I did some research on this. I thought, how much do people pay to have this done? First of all, I learned that people actually write grant requests, and there are grants given to restore art. There, This is funded, like on a national level, on state levels. There are organizations who are responsible for getting art restored. And he said, Peter Himmelstein said, that a small painting, like just like a locally owned but a very valuable painting, that could cost $800 to $1,000 to restore. And then larger paintings, if they're damages, they could go up to ten to $15,000. Here's the revenue of this industry. According to IBIS World, IBIS World, whatever this website is, they track all these things. Here it is. Here's the number of the amount that people spent. Oh, it was uh, 2016 to 2021 was the stat. $900 million to bring broken down, you know where I'm going, broken down, forgotten, neglected, damaged pieces of art back to their original state. $900 million. Now, let's talk about you. I'd like to think of therapy as a sort of practice of the conservator restorer of art. Therapists are skilled and trained to slowly, painstakingly, patiently, hopefully skillfully work through layers of hurt, pain, traumas if they're present, fears, the masks we wear, all of it to reveal the masterpiece underneath. Now, at no point does the conservator just stop their work because it's just not worth it. You know what? They are. It's just not worth it. This piece, I don't know. I'm just going to, you know, hang it up. No, these people believe in what they're doing. They're passionate about it. This is slow work. It takes time. Let me ask you a question. How much more worth the effort are you than artwork? How much more worthy are you of restoring and conserving and preserving than a piece of art? First of all, friends, I want to say this. Be your own conservator. Be your own restorer. The person you are underneath the layers, and it could be layers of depression, anxiety, mistakes, pain, trauma, issues, 
all of the stuff that covers us up. That masterpiece needs to be revealed. We need your story. We need your presence, your life to take its rightful place in the world of human beings. This is an unavoidable truth. You will learn your worth now or later. I believe that. And I do believe in an afterlife. And if you don't learn it in this life, you're going to get to the next life and realize that you were a masterpiece the whole time. But learn it now so you can live. All right, let's pause there. Facing reality isn't easy. No, it's not. There are many more unavoidable truths we could share. We each have them. I wish we had a roundtable discussion here. We would learn so much for one another. But if we can face one, we can face more. So I want you to ask yourself, which was the hardest for you to face of the 10? Why? I have a gut feeling that for a lot of you, it's going to be the 10th one. It's just human beings. That's just the way we are. And then I want you to ask yourself, what makes me run away from it? This week, talk with someone you know about this. Have a good conversation about the unavoidable truth that was the hardest for you to face and start facing it. We can do this together. So let's circle back to that quote when Jack Welch said, face reality as it is, not as it was or as you want it to be. He was giving us a very real shortcut. Instead of learning the hard way, which is denying reality and then getting hit with it right between the eyes, that's the hard way. That's the school of hard knocks, right? Knocks right in the head. We can simply work on acceptance Accepting reality is the mark of a very mature life. Not just ugly realities, but the beautiful realities too. The ones that say that you are more beautiful, strong, wise, and important than you can ever know. I want to thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear, keep sharing this podcast. You know, I live and work in Nashville, and sometimes I run into people who have heard about me or people who know me, but, you know, they're always telling me I'm sharing your podcast. I think I told you a couple weeks ago that this this girl was like, oh, I share your podcast with everybody I know, but I've never listened to it. I was like, well, thanks for the faith in me. But if you are sharing it, thank you. Hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a five-star review. Leave a written review. And again, if you want to share your thoughts with me, feedback about the podcast, send me an email. The email address is very obvious, thepodcast at vanessalandino.com. Remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are, which is a masterpiece, and learn to love that human being. And remember that love happens in reality. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Landino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Landino Podcast.